the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. Tyler for Friday, October 9th, 2020. Well, we are well less than a month away from Election Day. And while it's been pretty clear that thanks to the uh, fun of trying to hold a presidential election in a year with a major pandemic, we are not going to know the results, the final results of the election on the night of November 3rd. Uh, The fact is, by at least a month from now, uh, November 7th to November 9th, that period should be when um, most of the votes will have been counted. We'll have a pretty solid idea. And hopefully um, we can look back 30 days from now and go, oh, thank goodness we were panicked about nothing. But the fact is, is there are reasons to think that there might be a Biden landslide in the offering. Um Just this week, on October 6th, it was reported that Democrat Joe Biden has extended his advantage in the presidential race in the wake of the first debate and uh, President Donald Trump's diagnosis and hospital treatment for COVID-19. Fueled by stark shifts among senior citizens. Now, you have to stop for a moment and go, wait a minute. (laughs) I mean, if there's any stereotypical uh, image of a Trump supporter, you, it definitely tends to involve the uh, quote unquote boomer part of it. Now, don't get me wrong. If you are a member of those folks who were born from 1946 to 1962, I'm not saying you're automatically a Trump supporter. No, 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 no. I'm just saying that amongst people of that generation, Trump had had some pretty strong support, especially in 2016. Um, However, national and swing state polls in the last week show an exodus among voters 65 and older from Trump to Biden, an alarming sign for the president after NBC News exit polls showed he won that crucial Republican-leaning cohort by eight points in 2016. A recent NBC Wall Street Journal poll found Biden leading Trump by 14 points, his largest advantage ever in the survey. Among seniors 65 and older, Biden led by a startling 27 points. That's a 23-point swing in his direction in one month. 
Now, the recent drop-offs among seniors represent an open wound for the president's campaign that could turn fatal to his hopes of re-election. They come as Trump faces growing disapproval for his handling of the pandemic, which has killed more than 200,000 Americans and is disproportionately deadly to the elderly. His own COVID-19 diagnosis and decisions to host large gatherings with sparse mask-wearing folks uh, have fueled concerns, to put it mildly. Um, Democrats have sought to connect Trump's COVID-19 handling to his policy proposals to reduce health care funding under the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid, which, you know, funds nursing homes. (laughs) You know, Jesse Ferguson, a Democratic consultant and campaign veteran, said Donald Trump refused to combat the virus that gives them COVID and is working overtime to cut away their coverage if they get sick. More COVID and less coverage seems like a tough sell to seniors. Now, post-debate surveys show Biden leading outside the margin of error in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and right here in Wisconsin, three states that narrowly sealed Trump's victory in 2016. A New York Times Siena poll of Pennsylvania found Biden ahead by seven points. His lead among seniors, though, 11 points. A WDIV Detroit News poll of Michigan found Biden extending his lead to 8.8 points, powered by a nearly 30-point lead among seniors over 65 years of age, a 22-point swing since early September. That's one month in one month in the state of Michigan, a 22-point swing towards Biden. That's enormous. In a new Siena poll of Arizona, a state that's voted Republican in all but one presidential election since 1952, Biden is leading Trump by one among seniors and by eight points overall. So again, one of the redder states in the union when it comes to presidential politics, Biden is leading Trump. Now, with well less than a month ago, Trump has been more competitive in surveys of Florida, North Carolina, and Ohio, which are essential to his path to victory. And with the uncertainty surrounding mass vote by mail in a pandemic, and of course legal battles between the two major parties over voting laws in numerous states, the 2020 election has been an unusually volatile one. When asked about Trump's support slipping among seniors, campaign spokesman Tim Murtaugh said the president has a record of success and added, Joe Biden is proof that Obamacare was a complete failure. He criticized the Medicare for All plan that the Democratic vice presidential nominee, Senator Kamala Harris, supported as detrimental to seniors. Um, (laughs) Now, allow me to be clear, because we're talking about things that a Republican is saying about Democrats. Um, just as you might have to worry about something a Democrat might be saying about Republicans, watch for factual errors. The fact is, is that Harris backpedaled on the plan last year, and currently nobody who is in the top administration has any support for Medicare for All, something which, hey, as somebody who desperately and deeply wants that for the country, I'm, I'm pretty upset about. But <clears throat> nonetheless... Now, Americans 65 and older are a Republican-friendly block overall, haven't voted to send a Democratic uh, president to the White House since the year 2000, according to exit polls. Now, we are talking about not only baby boomers, 
Um, but also the silent generation, which if you're not familiar is the generation just north of baby boomers, the ones that were born um, leading up to and through World War II. Um, and these folks tend to turn out at higher rates than younger generations. It's just been the way it is. Um, Trump lacks a viable path to victory without these generations, particularly when you're talking about millennials and Gen Z voters who solidly are not voting for Trump. The senior vote wasn't the only warning sign for Trump in the NBC poll. Suburban voters favored Biden by 11 points after splitting evenly last month. So let's make sure we get this clear for you. One month ago, 30 days ago, it was basically 50-50. It was, it was for every suburban voter you'd find who said, I'm for Biden, you'd find one that said, I'm for Trump. Now Biden's leading by 11 points. These are huge defections. Uh, white voters without a college degree, which voted for Trump by a 39-point margin in 2016, favored the president by only 14 points this time. And just since last month, that's a decline of nine points. So this time last month, 23 points, now 14 points. Even amongst white voters without college education, Trump is slipping fast. Now, Biden himself is, by the way, post-boomer. He is of the silent generation, barely, but still. Uh, he's 77 years old, and he's courted older voters by presenting himself as a steady and competent leader who would listen to scientists and develop a national plan to combat the uh, coronavirus. He's consistently worn masks and called for mask mandates across the nation, while Trump, 74, about as old as you can be and be a boomer, has downplayed the severity of the virus and last week mocked Biden for being overly cautious with masks. <laughs> of course, just in time to be, you know, diagnosed with coronavirus himself. Um, and in fact, days later, after Trump announced that he tested positive for the virus, Biden had, of course, tested negative. Uh, Trump spent the weekend receiving treatment in the hospital, as we're all aware. Um, he then returned to the White House on Monday, saying, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. Mr. President, there are 210,000 Americans who cannot give you a retort for that, but I'll give one for you. It dominated their life. They're dead including your supposed friend, Herman Cain. Now, on Tuesday, Donald Trump again compared COVID-19 to the flu. An analogy that medical experts have repeatedly said is wrong and dangerous. But uh, let, me, let, me just, let me just really quickly give you why. So Trump's claim is that the flu can claim up to 100,000 American lives in a year, and people don't realize that. That's, first of all, factually incorrect. The most lives claimed by the flu is somewhere in the 70,000s in a single year. Okay, so let's start with that. Secondly, we're talking 210,000 lives claimed by COVID-19 in a six-month period. And before you go, oh, wait, that's just people who were, you know, going to die anyway and were complicated by factors of COVID-19, that's not true. You see, because... The deaths that are associated with the flu, those 70,000 that say, oh, the flu killed them. Yeah, the flu killed those people with core, uh, uh, pardon me, uh, comorbidities 
just like COVID-19 killed people with comorbidities. You won't have 70,000 people dying of the flu if you strip away everybody with comorbidities, just like you won't have 210,000 people dying of COVID-19 if you strip away the comorbidities. The fact is, these diseases cause deaths that wouldn't happen on their own by preying on people who do have weaknesses. Yes, that's what happens. That's what happens. But that's exactly how the flu gets up to 70,000 in the worst year on record modernly here. So that's how COVID-19 in six months gets up to 210,000. People have other things wrong with them and diseases prey on that and turn those things deadly. Just because you happen to have cancer, but you die in a fatal car crash doesn't mean the car crash wasn't the cause of your death. Sure, maybe the cancer and the pain you're in from it caused you to have to uh, wince and close your eyes for half a moment while you were driving, and that's why you hit the semi-truck in front of you. But that car crash was still your death, not the cancer directly. The cancer would have been a comorbidity. Get it? There we go. Now, Trump returned complaining about press coverage of his presidency. He says he doesn't receive enough credit for the economy. He says all they want to discuss is COVID-19. Oh, we'll get to the economy in next segment, Mr. Trump. But in the meantime, let's dive into this a little bit. This idea that when it comes to boomers and silent generation folks, that Trump's lost some major support this year. All right, so Clifford Wagner, an 80-year-old Republican, self-described, in Tucson, Arizona, never cared for President Trump. He supported Bush, Jeb Bush, that is, in the 2016 presidential primary race, cast a protest vote in the general election for Gary Johnson, the Libertarian nominee. An Air Force veteran, Mr. Wagner described the Trump presidency as a mortifying experience. His friends in Europe and Japan tell him the United States has become the laughingstock of the world. This year, Mr. Wagner said he would register his opposition to Mr. Trump more emphatically than he did in 2016. His plans to vote for Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee here, well, the Democratic nominee, and his hopes that the election is a ruinous one for the Democratic Party. Mr. Wagner said, I'm a Christian and I do not believe in the hateful, racist, bigoted speech that the president uses. He added, as much as I never thought I'd say this, I hope we get a Democratic president, a Democratic-controlled Senate, and maintain a Democratic-controlled House. Mr. Wagner's part of one of the most important maverick voting groups in the 2020 general election. These conservative-leaning seniors who've soured on the Republican Party over the past four years. Now, please understand, I am a huge left-wing progressive some would even say socialist, and I won't shy from that label. I'm, I won't get into that discussion right now, but just let me let me tell you, you don't get much more left than I am, okay? But I am right now very, very interested in watching the tides turning. After all, Republican presidential candidates typically carry older voters by solid margins. I mean, in 2016... Trump bested Hillary Clinton by seven percentage points with voters over 65. He won white people 
by that in that age group by nearly triple that margin. <clears throat> Pardon me, almost 20, I believe it was 20 points. So almost triple the margin with white seniors. Today, Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden, it's a whole different ballgame with Biden pulling ahead. Um, I mean, this is no small advantage for Joe Biden. Uh, given the prevalence of retirement communities in, in some of these crucial states, including Arizona and, you know, Florida, no Democrat has won or broken even with seniors in two decades. All right, since Al Gore in 2000 devoted much of his general election campaign to warning that Republicans would cut popular programs like Social Security and Medicare. In 2016, Mr. Trump, who's now 74, seemed in some ways keenly attuned to the political sensitivities of voters in his own age group. As a candidate, he bluntly rejected his party's long-standing interest in restructuring government guarantees of retirement security. But Donald Trump's presidency has been anything but that. It's been a very trying experience for many of these voters, some of whom are now so frustrated and disillusioned they're preparing to take the, what seems to be them, drastic step of supporting a Democrat. The grievances of these defecting seniors are familiar. Most or all of them shared by younger peers as well. But these voters often express themselves with a particularly sharp kind of dismay and disappointment. They see Mr. Trump as a coarse and disrespectful person, divisive to his core and failing persistently to comport himself with the dignity of the other presidents that they have observed for more than half a century. Keep in mind, as, uh, as bad as Trump looks to myself or anybody younger than I am, if you've lived 60, 70, 80 years on this planet, you have a number of other presidents to compare Trump to. And the more presidents you compare Trump to, the worse Trump looks. So, I mean, the, most seniors seem to be disapproving of Mr. Trump's handling of race relations and his handling of the protests after the death of George Floyd, even. And of course, as the coronavirus pandemic continues, to just blaze through the nation, putting older Americans at a particular risk, these voters feel a special kind of frustration and betrayal with Donald Trump's ineffective leadership and often blasé public comments about the crisis. Even more so, as we saw, when he himself was found to be infected, he's still downplaying it. The president has urged the country to return to life as usual, you know, far more quickly than uh, the top public health officials in his own administration have recommended. Some prominent Republican officials and conservative pundits have even suggested at times that older people should be willing to risk their own health for the sake of a quicker resumption of the business cycle. Or, you know, put less flowerly, they would basically said, you know, maybe it's okay if grandma and grandpa dies if the economy keeps rolling. Hey, guess what? Grandma and grandpa vote. That's a stupid thing to say. Now, former Representative Carlos uh, Curbelo of Florida, a 40-year-old Republican deeply versed in the politics of the retiree-rich swing state, said many seniors were disturbed by important aspects of Donald Trump's record and found Joe Biden a mild and respectable alternative who did not inspire the same um, hatred uh, that um, Hillary Clinton did in 2016. 
Regarded by much of his own party as bland and conventional, Biden's nostalgia-cloaked candidacy may be uniquely equipped to ease a sizable group of the right-of-center seniors into the Democratic column, at least, you know, this year. Mr. Cabello said, He's not ever been known to be a radical or an extreme leftist or liberal, so there's certainly a degree of comfort there. Adding, This public health crisis is so threatening, especially to seniors, and because the president hasn't earned high marks in his handling of it, I think that's also been a factor in Biden's improving numbers. Now, Joe and his allies have expressed growing excitement about the political possibilities that the shifting senior vote could create in just a month here. Now, that's true not only in Sunbelt retirement havens, but also in Midwestern states, where Joe is currently running well ahead of Clinton's 2016 performance with a range of conservative-leaning constituencies, including older white voters. Um, in Iowa, former Governor Tom Vilsack, a close Joe Biden ally, said the former vice president had closed a substantial deficit in the state through his response to the coronavirus, his connection with older rural voters, and his ability to empathize. Vilsack said, well, part of it is the demeanor he has projected during the course of this pandemic. As much as Joe's doing, it's probably as much or more what the president has done or failed to do. He cited an ad from a group of anti-Trump Republicans that cast Trump's approach to the crisis as erratic and selfish, unlike past presidents who have confronted national tragedies like the Challenger disaster or the Oklahoma City bombing. Vilsack continued, each of those presidents was able to connect emotionally to the feelings of the nation. This president has had a really, really hard time doing that. Mr. Trump's ineffective response to the coronavirus weighed on the thinking of many older voters, uh, including Patrick Mallon, 73, a retired information technology specialist in Battle Creek, Michigan. Mr. Mallon said he was a registered Republican who had long been unhappy with Mr. Trump, but mindful that he was presiding over a strong economy. The pandemic set Mr. Mallon firmly against Trump's re-election. The main reason is Donald Trump saying, don't wear a mask. This thing's going to go away. We can have large gatherings, he said. Everything he says is incorrect and dangerous to the country. Mr. Mallon added, when young people contract the coronavirus, most of them will survive, but they're going to give it to their parents, their grandparents, and I'm sorry, we're just as important as that younger generation is. <laughs> Now, the abandonment of Mr. Trump by older voters is far from universal. He still has a, a notably um, loyal support amongst a very tight core of older white men and self-described conservatives. However, as we've seen uh, in this newest poll, that has really dwindled over the past month. Now, Karen Gamble, 65-year-old of Reedsville, North Carolina, said she was dissatisfied with the overall government response to the coronavirus outbreak and echoed many popular complaints about Mr. Trump's persona. She said she wished, for instance, that Donald Trump wouldn't be such a bully and would conform to being in a regal-like position as our presidents have always been. Ms. Gamble said she was planning to support Donald Trump in the election all the same, Describing Joe Biden as too old and too compromised on matters related to China, but for her, she said she has a severe lung problem and expressed hope that 
Mr. Trump would change his approach to the pandemic. <laughs> I will note that her interview happened prior to Donald's own infection. Now, in Tucson, Gerald Lankin, a more forceful Trump supporter, said he would back the president mainly as a vote against the Democrats. Mr. Lankin, 77, said he found Mr. Trump's personal manner offensive, but agreed with him on most issues and saw Democrats as much, 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 much too far to the left. He hasn't really done anything I can say I'm against, Mr. Lankin said of Trump. I think what he's doing is the best he can, but boy, he is tough to take. He is a tough guy to take. So, let's be really clear. Even amongst people who are just fine with horrific racist policies, who are fine with immigrant families being separated, who are fine with immigrant women being forced to have hysterectomies, who are fine with embracing white nationalist groups like the Proud Boys, who are fine with all of that, even they find Trump really hard to take. Now, at this moment, Donald Trump's unpopularity, unpopularity, I should say, with older voters, appears to be hindering other Republicans in states, including Arizona and Michigan. Gail Craven, an 80-year-old of High Point, North Carolina, a registered Republican, said she'd not voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and will reject him again this year. She said she saw Joe Biden as an honest man. She said Trump is the biggest disappointment. He has made America look like idiots. I think he's an embarrassment to my country. Other older voters leaning toward Mr. Biden cautioned that they could still change their minds. Frederick Monk, of 73-year-old uh, of Mesa, Arizona, said he'd voted for Donald Trump but quickly came to see him as incompetent. Still, he, still, he said his mind was not fully made up. If Mr. Biden embraced policies that were just far too liberal for him, well, he said he could cast a vote for Mr. Trump and hope his second term was an exercise in futility. Mr. Monk said hopefully the Democrats retake the Senate and make his next four years miserable if he lasts even that long. So yes, as you can see across the country, and especially in those key battleground states, Trump's got a problem. And it's not one that he can easily ignore. No, these are voters that show up. These are the voters that tend to push the Republicans over the top when Republicans win. And these are the voters that are fleeing Trump in droves. Now, it really doesn't help that as they've said repeatedly and in the examples I even gave there, senior citizens understand that the coronavirus pandemic really does threaten them more than just about anybody. Now, Joe Biden on Tuesday this week kept his focus on the virus, tweeting, folks, we can save nearly 100,000 lives by the end of the year if everyone wears a mask in public. Do your part. Protect your neighbors. Wear a mask. Ladies and gentlemen, I am no fan of Joe Biden. You know this, I'm sure. But I'll use him as a tool to uh, to get rid of Trump this time. Um, holding my nose is, is definitely uh, one way of putting it, but 
I'll use him as a tool to get rid of Trump. But, 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 but here's the deal. If you go to TMI, TMI, TMI.com, that's TMI three times.com. You will see at the upper left-hand corner of TMI, TMI, TMI.com, my picture. And that picture, ladies and gentlemen, is wearing a mask. Does it have to? Oh, heck no. It's online. There's no way you can catch anything from me there. But it's there for a point. Because we need to respect each other enough to try to keep our breath to ourselves. At least to keep our breath closer to ourselves. And that's all a mask is supposed to do. Now, of course, if you really want to make your mask effective, you can do what I recommended last episode and go find yourself one of those badger seals that's being made uh, on campus there at UW-Madison. Or check out, just Google UW-Madison badger seal and it can tell you how to make one for less than a dollar worth of materials. They make masks even more effective. Either way, please, ladies and gentlemen, wear a mask. Respect each other. Let's see about saving some lives. I don't think that's too much to ask. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. i 
And we're back, TMI with Aldous Tyler. Now, if you're anything like me, you used to enjoy going to the movies. It was, um, I know for me, it was one of my pleasures that I would actually go and uh, sacrifice budget-wise to save up and do. Um, if I knew there was a film coming out that I wanted to see, I would actually spend the month or two prior to that um, scrimping and saving where I could so that I knew that when that movie came out, even if it couldn't be opening weekend, within a weekend or two, I could go out, see it on the big screen the way that the director had intended um, with all of the 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 uh, grandeur, with all of the effects, with all of uh, the sound right where it should be. It was something that uh, was a uh, a great pleasure of mine. And I'm speaking of it in the past tense because I haven't been inside a movie theater now for roughly a year. And uh, it's possible that I might never be again. James Bond, interestingly enough, may have been the last straw for Cineworld. The, the company that owns Regal Cinemas. Um, you may or may not have heard, but Cineworld has chosen to shut down all Regal theaters in both America and in the United Kingdom. They're done. They're gone. They're the second largest theater chain here in America. They had 536 theaters, a total of 7,076 screens. And all of them are shutting their doors here in the United States. Um, there's 127 theaters in the UK as well. And if you're going to uh, work it out, that's probably about another at least 1,500 screens or so there. Over 45,000 people may lose their jobs or be furloughed, and there's no timeline for reopening. Now, when I say James Bond may have been the last straw, it's because um, it was just announced the day before Cineworld made this announcement that the newest James Bond film was not going to come out in November after all, that they were going to push it back to April of next year. And Cinemark just lost it. Now, in what seems like good news, um, Sorry, Cineworld, I should say, just lost it. And what seems like good news, AMC and Cinemark, the first and third largest U.S. chains, respectively, aren't going to be following Regal's lead just yet. Each confirmed that over 80% of their U.S.-based theaters are open and will stay open, despite Regal's decision. But if you love the theaters, don't take that as a reprieve. Even with Regal out of the picture, AMC and Cinemark are fighting over pieces of a pie so small that both of them could still wind up starving. Financial records show that AMC lost $2.7 billion in the first six months of this year. Cinemark lost $230 million. That's not surprising because, you know, revenue all but evaporated for each company. People stopped going to the theaters, like myself. The revenue dropped 98.7% for AMC and 99% for Cinemark compared to the previous summer. We're talking just under $20 million and under $10 million, respectively, um, being what they, what they hauled in. 
compared to the $65 million that Cinemark paid in rent. Benchmark analyst Mike Hickey said they're, they're in a state of no revenue. That's about as dire a situation as you can imagine. Each chain publicly said it can only hold out through part of 2021 unless things change. Despite taking on hundreds of millions of dollars in debt this year, renegotiating rents with their landlords, laying off tens of thousands of employees, reducing salaries, closing some small numbers of theaters permanently, they're still looking at problems. I mean... Wedbush Securities analyst Michael Pachter explains, it's largely a matter of rent. The big chains largely don't own their own buildings, so even if they stop screening movies, furlough their employees and stop selling food, well, Cinemark had to throw out two and a half, uh, sorry, two, about roughly two and a half million worth dollars of perishable food last quarter, by the way. They still have to pay rent. And there's only a matter of time before landlords, many of whom need to pay their own mortgages, will come to collect. Patrick said, if we don't get some visibility to a vaccine soon, you wonder how long the landlords are going to be patient. And that's just the remaining major theater chains, which, along with Regal, accounted for only 53% of the movie screens in the United States. On September 30th, the National Association of Theater Owners warned Congress that 69% of small and mid-sized theater companies will be forced to file for bankruptcy if things continue as they did through the summer. A lot of them are small chains. Mom and pop businesses, generational sometimes. Hickey said, I think a lot of them won't be able to survive this. Now, things aren't quite as bad now as they were in the, in the summer because those numbers are from when theaters were largely closed in the U.S. AMC and Cinemark only began reopening for real in August, ahead of the release of Christopher, Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Theaters had hoped Tenet would bring back crowds, and its director and owners had repeatedly insisted the film wouldn't skip theaters and needed to be seen there. But Tenet opened to only $20 million over Labor Day weekend, a number that could only be generously viewed as good given the pandemic, and it didn't even manage to cross $30 million by September 13th. It's now past $300 million in global box office receipts, but exhibitor relations analyst Jeff Bach tells us that might not nearly be good enough. With a budget of $205 million, plus a huge marketing campaign, the film probably needed to exceed $450 million to just break even. He said, this is a high-stakes game, and with Tenet probably maxing out at $350 million worldwide, that's just not going to cut it. It was originally estimated to be a $700 million global film before the pandemic. In other words, they figured it was going to make at least... $700 million worldwide. But it's only going to take in $350 million. That's a lot of popcorn and candy the theaters aren't selling, which, by the way, is largely how theaters make money. After seeing the early tenant receipts, Warner Brothers quickly decided not to risk Wonder Woman 1984 on those audiences, pushing it to Christmas Day. And current um, rumors say they may actually uh, release Wonder Woman 1984 digital only. But in the wake of No Time to Die, the James Bond film pushing out, and, uh, and Dune also being pushed back a year, and Regal Cinema's shuttering, we're wondering, what's going to happen here? What will theaters do if Wonder Woman or Disney Pixar's Soul, the other big family film due out this year, are further delayed? 
Hickey says you need good content to get people back to the movies. Arguing that the studios and theater owners will need to coordinate if theaters are to survive instead of continually pushing movies back. He says it's a good sign Disney hasn't delayed Soul yet, and that if key markets like Los Angeles and New York reopen their theaters, maintain safety requirements, and play some good movies, he thinks audiences will start to return. But Pactor argues it won't matter unless there's a vaccine because people are still afraid of potentially catching COVID-19, and rightly so. Imagine being in the theater and hearing somebody cough, he asks me. And neither Benchmark or Wedbush is expecting things to normalize anytime soon. The box office is pretty much destroyed from mid-March of 2020 to mid-March of 2021, says Pactor, calling it a lost year for the industry. Hickey says his company's models bring us close to normal in 2022. While Pactor thinks it's very easy for the studios to keep pushing back films right now and hope they'll find an audience later, particularly because the pandemic initially created a multi-month hole in film production too, leaving a gap for these films, they won't be able to do that forever because there isn't enough room. With 130 major studio releases each year, there are only so many movies that can get pushed back before there are too many for theaters to screen. He said, we have to prepare for the inevitability that one or more of the major chains, AMC, Regal, Cinemark, may not survive if this goes into next summer, he said. And he said that prior to Regal saying they're, they're done. There are many factors that could keep a vaccine from arriving before then, but even if one or more of the big theater chains do go under, like Regal is doing so right now, he said it's not necessarily the end of American big screen cinema. No one seems to believe that Disney's experiment to skip theaters with Mulan was necessarily a success, or that Netflix, Amazon, or other streamers will simply snap up the big blockbuster films, killing theaters in the process. Studios still need theaters to maximize their returns. Pactor believes that the theaters will survive. They just may not be run by the same people. He points out... It's not easy to simply turn a multiplex into a department store, and he suggests that while hundreds or thousands of theaters might close, the failing movie chains might simply be snapped up by new investors. Patrick says a vaccine is coming. If it comes a year from now, I think the owners of the listing chains will change out. If it's in the next three months, all of them survive. Even if the announcement is 10 months from now, I think landlords would work with the movie chains and not force them to go away. It's just the not knowing that's the risk. So, like the rest of U.S. society, the theaters remain in limbo. And it may be a good long while before I sit in a darkened, wonderfully laid out theater with perfect sound and perfect vision to snack on popcorn with a bunch of folks I don't know while we all enjoy the same presentation in front of us. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Published this Tuesday, October 6th, on commondreams.org, you will find in the Views section a familiar name, perhaps, Aldous Tyler, being the byline. That's right. I got an op-ed published in commondreams.org, and it's called I'm a never-Biden Wisconsin voter. Here's why I'm voting Biden anyway. I fight Nazis. I make no apologies. My grandfather fought Nazis. There was no alternative. Nazis were evil incarnate to be taken down without any hesitation. Everything else took a backseat to that number one priority. Now, whenever elections come around, people forget themselves. Problems, whether genuine or imagined, get blown out of proportion. As all sides heat up, comparisons to fascism, no matter how misplaced, fly freely. Your champion is the greatest hero since Lincoln. Their contender is the most despicable villain since Senator Palpatine. Or Adolf Hitler. Lazy rationales, along with reckless us-versus-them mentality in modern debates, assures us that accusations of Nazi-level fascism is where most online arguments inevitably wind up. The effect's so common, it's got its own theorem called Godwin's Law, which allows for declaring the first troll to abuse the comparison between modern things and Nazism the loser of a debate. In reality, virtually no modern candidate or officeholder has been malevolent enough to be properly considered a Nazi. When you contrast contemporary evils with the horrors inflicted against Jewish and other peoples by Germany 80 years ago, well, that quashes nearly any misuse of the term. Every presidential election gets touted as the most important of our lives. That tactic is used to coerce anyone who can't stomach either major party candidate. Americans have a greater responsibility, though, to elect someone who represents what we believe to be true, fair, or, or just. Otherwise, if our vote doesn't represent our choice, we're just going through the motions. Now, if you've ever engaged with any disenfranchised folk, you understand many can't get behind Joe Biden's Senate voting record, myself included. The reasons don't matter now, though. It, just know that I had no plans to support him, despite the added pressure of voting in a swing state like Wisconsin here. And based on his history of capitulation to big money, I can't trust any bones Joe throws to the left. But you know, Biden is no Nazi. But there are Nazis in America today, gaining more power every day. And that has my attention because, as I said, I fight Nazis. Now, uh, people can embrace the symbols of hate just for the shock value. You know, those types aren't Nazis. They, they may be fools, but if that was my benchmark, I'd never get sleep. People can believe that whites are the only true humans. Such people are racist, but not necessarily Nazis. People can despise outsiders from crap hole countries, sheltering here to escape the unspeakable circumstances they fled because those people reproducing in this once great nation makes it less like it used to be. 
Such people exude zero empathy and appalling hypocrisy, given how many of our ancestors came to this place to escape terrifying situations elsewhere. I mean, that's hateful, but it doesn't necessarily make them Nazis. So, what does it take to label someone a Nazi? Well, okay, Nazis blatantly treat everyone who doesn't meet their code as not just subhuman, but the enemy, befittingly tortured or killed. That's a steep standard of evil. Even so, it grows among us. Let's review some facts here. In 2018, the last surviving Nuremberg prosecutor, Ben Frentz, defined Trump's policy of separating undocumented children from their parents as a crime against humanity. In 2019, top Trump advisor Stephen Miller was outed as a white nationalist in leaked emails, yet still continues to advise President Trump to this day. Trump has suggested to mostly white crowds at rallies that whites are genetically superior. In last Tuesday's debate with Biden, Trump ordered known white supremacist group the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by in response to being asked to publicly disavow them. These are textbook signs of fascism, enough to warrant the Nazi description of our leader by themselves, but it gets even worse. An ICE whistleblower complaint asserts captive immigrant women have been forcibly sterilized against their will while being concentrated in detention camps with inadequate facilities, which, by the way, meets the definitive classification of a concentration camp. So yes, concentration camps here in America where they're forcibly sterilizing women. I mean, there's only one step further into the Nazi playbook than that. So I have to do my part to make damn sure we never get there. Because by any definition, the U.S. president right now is a Nazi. Now, most elections are showdowns. So voting third party is bringing a knife to a gunfight thanks to the insufficient dual offerings of an ineffective two-party system. I've been at peace with brandishing that weapon when it represented the future I wanted for this nation, but right now, we have a Nazi to fight. There are only two guns in the current battleground that is the 2020 presidential election, and one of them is in the hands of a Nazi. I really don't care anymore if the other gun is Joe Biden. I have to pick it up and take my shot. Because I fight Nazis. If you agree with what I just said, again, I'll post that link to the commondreams.org uh, piece by myself uh, at TMI, TMI, TMI.com. But I get asked a lot, Aldous, it's a messed up world. How do you see things as clearly as you do? Well, it's very simple. First thing you need to do is close your eyes. Take a deep breath and find a center within yourself. Remember what matters to you. Only then will you be ready to see the world for how it truly is. And then all you have to do is... Oh!